Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with David Pearson, who is the author of Rebel Music in the Triumphant Empire, Punk Rock in the 1990s United States. David, thanks for being here with me today. Thanks for having me on, Rebecca. Could you talk a little bit about how this book got started, um, why you wanted to put this together and um, sort of the foundations of it? Sure. So 90s punk was just part of my upbringing, for one thing. Um, when I was a teenager, it's one of the musics I got I listened to. Um, I, it was especially, for me, a conduit into radical political activism. Like, it was through opening up Os Rotten's The System Works for Then record that I learned about Mumi Abu-Jamal, who's a political prisoner, um, who at the time was on death row. He's a former Black Panther. Um so through hearing about those political issues from punk, I got involved in political movements and had a lot to do in that way with shaping my political consciousness. Um, you know, I also just love the music as far as just expressing a kind of um, rage in a way that uh, doesn't kind of fit into, you know, mainstream politics, doesn't fit into the status quo and is willing to go outside of that. Um, so that was definitely my foundation. Um, as I became a music academic, as I was, you know, getting my PhD in musicology, one of the things I realized is that while a lot of things have been written about punk, not a lot has been written about 1990s punk. Um, a lot of the scholarship tends to focus on the late 70s and early 80s. Um, and then when the 90s does get talked about, it's usually only like the handful of successful bands and Riot Girl. Um, which are fine things, of course, to you know write about, talk about, um, but I felt like the underground scene hadn't really been explored. Um, and the other thing I noticed about existing scholarship and journalism on punk is that the music hadn't really been analyzed that much. Um, and for me, I'm a musician. I do a lot of music analysis in general. So I felt like trying to get to the heart of what kind of makes punk music tick. Why do people, some people really love this music? What is it? in the musical sounds themselves. Um, so for that reason, I did a lot of music analysis. Um, and so basically that turned into my PhD dissertation and then I turned that into a book from there. So one of the things I think, and you allude to it, it when you sort of talked about the introduction and, and getting this book to fruition is that idea of we often see books about punk historically or punk as a subculture, but you really did an in-depth analysis of songs and music. And so can you talk a little bit about that and about that choice and how it sort of shaped um, the bands you sort of looked at and shaped you thinking about punk in 1990s punk? Sure. So I think a lot of times when punk, when the music does actually get talked about, we just get that refrain of it's simple three chord rock music. And, you know, on this, in one level, that's sort of true. Um, on another level, I think there's a whole lot of nuances to punk and there's a lot more than, you know, three chord riffs to it. And that's the reason why some people love it. That's the reason why it's so meaningful to people. Um, so I think that hadn't necessarily been explored and the other thing in existing scholarship in punk is oftentimes when people do talk about musical style, they talk about it as basically uh, punk bands trying to escape co-optation, not let the mainstream music industry co-opt them. So thus, you know, making abrasive sounds. And again, that's an aspect of truth, but I think there's actually something to the sounds that we love that we you know move to in the mosh pit um that you know just moves us emotionally so i really wanted to explore that and i think that um and i have as a musicologist i just have the skills to do it as well so i thought this is something i could kind of uniquely contribute to our understanding of punk um 
And then aside from that, I think in the 1990s, we really get this proliferation of different punk subgenres. So um, exploring the 1990s through musical style and looking at what's the difference between grindcore versus SoCal punk versus crust punk was a way to understand the music and also the way to understand how different kinds of punk meant very different things to different people and kind of served different purposes. Um, so that was basically how I went about it. Yeah. So you start with, um, with the dregs of the eighties, right? So punk coming into the 1990s, um, very differently than 77 punk and what was happening in the 1980s, especially around the hardcore scene. Um, so can you um, talk a little bit about that and, and what was happening and that idea of like coming out, kicking and screaming out of the 80s into the 90s? Yeah, so I think a commonplace assumption about punk is that it's kind of political in like a left-wing rebellious way, right? And that's true of a lot of punk. But there's actually also been some pretty right-wing punk, some pretty racist punk, um, and uh, Nazi skinheads within punk scenes, right? And this grew especially acute in the late 1980s. Um, for example, the band Screwdriver, um, which a Nazi punk band from England, actually got um, a following in the United States. Um, Tom Metzger, a not- notorious white supremacist organizer, um, actually was recruiting skinheads out of the punk scene in the late 1980s. Um, so there was this kind of violent racist element in punk. Um, there was even some skinheads involved in the Portland punk scene actually murdered an Ethiopian student in the late 1980s. Um, so there's that far right element. Then you also have uh, kind of a more macho element, especially concentrated in the straight edge hardcore scene in the late 1980s um, that really kind of foregrounded this kind of macho male attitude. Um, and then you also had some people who were just doing a lot of drugs and, you know, just basically treated punk as a place to get really fucked up. So that was, um, you know, both the far right element and that kind of drug addled element that was the, that was the dregs of the eighties. That was internally what punk was kind of dealing with. And then what happened is some, uh, much more political bands, came out in the late 1980s and early 1990s and really challenged all of that. And so you, like you said, there's a number of different um, sub sort of genres of punk and and you talk about them throughout. And so I'm wondering if you sort of start with crust punk discord. So could you maybe first start by talking about what those for people who don't know um, what that kind of, what that means to be crust punk and what that means to be discord. Yeah. Yeah. So crust punk and discord, I sort of put together. There's some differences between the two, but um, there's a lot of similarities. So one thing that happened with punk during the 1980s was crossover with heavy metal um, where punk bands were actually borrowing techniques from metal some metal bands were sort of going punk, and this was especially the case in the in England. Um, bands like Discharge, for example, um, started to have this kind of darker sound, um, more coming out of heavy metal. Um, and Discharge also um, they used riffs that had a lot of what in music are called tritones, which are just a very dissonant interval. Um, a lot more heavy palm muting, which is how you get this very like chugging sound um, on the guitars um, and political sloganeering lyrics. And so that sort of crossover between punk and metal, one of the things it resulted in is this style called crust punk. Um, And in crust punk, it's definitely a hardcore style of punk, meaning the tempos are like 300 beats per minute. Um, the vocals tend to be kind of yelled or screamed. Um, and in general, it's just a lot more abrasive sounding, more dissonance used um, in the guitar riffs. Um, crust punk, though, in particular, is not only that, but also a very propagandistic style of punk. Um, pretty much every crust punk band has left wing political lyrics. I can't think of an exception, and not that every single 
crust punk band song is political but generally speaking crust punk is this very left-wing political genre um some bands are um, really into anarchism some are sort of into anarchism so that's definitely part of it and then the music um alongside those lyrics becomes very propagandistic um and i say propagandistic not in like a good or bad way just you know as this is the aesthetic um it's about delivering this political message so often the choruses will be almost like chant like um you know like a chant for a protest um often the verse lyrics sometimes they can be quite lengthy because they're really trying to explain you know how corporations are destroying the environment in the third world um and you know going into a lot of detail with that um so basically crust punk is this hardcore style of punk and this very propagandistic style of punk. And and in each of these sort of chapters, you pick certain songs and bands that you kind of um, really analyze their music. So in here, you look at a number of songs by Osrotten. And so can you talk a little bit about why that band was so important and, and why you sort of use them as a framework within this chapter? Yeah, so... In the mid-1990s, Os Rotten was definitely one of the most prominent crust punk bands in the United States. Um, And they're in many ways, I think, a good encapsulation of crust punk, just because they bring together these different stylistic elements I've talked about. Um, I think their music also, um, their lyrics and music also took some stands in the, some political stands in the punk scene that stood out in some ways. Um, for example, they polemicized against pacifism. Um, they basically had songs and also um, art in their in their albums that basically said, you know, you can't defeat fascists with nonviolence. You know, self-defense is actually going to be required. So that was not necessarily a political position shared by other crust punk bands. So in that way, they generated some controversy um, they were also very strong supporters of the movement to free Mumia Abu-Jamal. Um, they consistently talked about him from the stage at their concerts, um, ha- you know, uh, talked about him in their albums. So in this way, they were also a very helpful conduit um, of basically punks into that particular political movement. Um, so that's, that's some of the reasons. Um, Aside from that, just in terms of record sales, um, as far as what records exist of that, Osrotten certainly did pretty well in the underground punk scene during the mid-1990s. Um, so, yeah, they definitely influenced a lot of people. So you move from sort of setting up with the propaganda, thinking about this, to um, the dystopian, kind of dystopian sublime, right? You call that chapter aspect of 90s hardcore and extreme hardcore. So maybe can we first define extreme hardcore? Yeah, um, <laughs> sure. So there's different punk subgenres that I lump together as extreme hardcore. Um, some of the names people might have heard of are like grindcore, power violence, sludge. Um, so those are the names. If you read punk scenes, you'll come across those. Extreme hardcore basically takes the musical techniques of hardcore punk to the extreme. So tempos go from, instead of just being 300 to 400 beats per minute, we get something called the blast beat, where the drummer just basically rapidly alternates between kick drum and snare drum. And that can go as fast as 800 beats per minute. Um, So that's just a whirlwind of a drum beat. So that's one way that it's extreme hardcore. Um, Vocals in extreme hardcore are just outright screamed. Um, Oftentimes people just think of punk vocals as all this kind of, you know, singular abrasive sound. There's actually a lot of differences in vocal technique within punk. Some punk bands sing their lyrics, but with a little bit of timbral distortion. Some punk bands kind of snarl sing. Some punk bands yell. Extreme hardcore bands generally just outright scream the lyrics. So they're distorted basically as much as a distorted guitar. And the two vocal techniques extreme hardcore bands tend to use are either these high-pitched screams 
or these low pitch growls like is the low pitch growl. I won't do the high pitch scream. Um, but anyway, cause my neighbors would think I'm weird. Um, but, um, so those are the vocal techniques. And then, uh, the guitar riffs actually use a lot of dissonant intervals as well. Um, a lot of punk music, a lot of punk riffs um, in the late 70s and early 80s fit into what would be called in rock music diatonic modality, um, which is using like uh, major and minor scales to construct the, the riffs, right? Um, in extreme hardcore, we get a lot of riffs that don't fit into those kind of standard diatonic scales and use a lot of dissonant intervals. So those all basically make it extreme hardcore and for you with extreme hardcore all of that right that those screams that sound all of the sort of speed of it really has meaning and history within punk so i'd love for you to talk a little bit about that and why it's why you why you see that as so important yeah so as a music historian, I think one of the things I'm always interested in is how changes in musical style usually are not just changes in sound, but they're also changes in what the music means to people, what political events are going on and all that. And I think that's also true of punk subgenres. Um, so punk has long had this kind of apocalyptic strain, um, right? You know, the Sex Pistols, you know, Future is their big refrain. In the 80s, one of punk's big concerns was nuclear war, you know, which was a very real possibility when uh, with Reagan in office at that time. And in the 1990s, though, I think the apocalypticism changed a little bit because the Cold War was over. So there's not this kind of immediate threat of nuclear war exactly. Um, and when especially when bill clinton becomes president you have this kind of you know liberal multiculturalism governing in washington so some of that more those more extreme expressions of kind of far-right politics have rescinded a bit they haven't gone away they're still there but they've rescinded a bit um but i think for a lot of punk bands they recognized well actually things aren't better you know um the u.s just basically pulverized iraq in this really vicious gulf war um the environment's you know being destroyed um people in the third world are still being really viciously exploited by corporations um and we can go down the list you know um but i think what was different in the 90s versus the 80s is a warning about these things and kind of expressing the potential kind of apocalyptic catastrophe that these things could lead to didn't have as much popular resonance in American society at the time. Um, exactly because, you know, the cloud of nuclear war wasn't hanging over people's heads. So it with such immediacy. So to me, I think of extreme hardcore um, in some ways as basically a way to kind of find a way to voice this, apocalyptic feeling um and many extreme hardcore bands such as drop dead and his hero is gone and hell nation have a lot of apocalypticism in their lyrics um really just addressing whether it's you know environmental destruction or kind of the way that much of the american populace kind of goes along blindly with these things this was a central theme in the music and i think ratcheting up the intensity of hardcore punk was a way of basically sounding this kind of warning, particularly when you can't really articulate that warning within mainstream political discourse at the time. Um, that wasn't the only message in extreme hardcore punk uh, lyrics, but that was definitely a prominent one. Um, and, and so we have these sort of extreme hardcore, we have, um, some of the other bands going on and then you move into which for me was my favorite because you talk about one of my favorite punk bands which is spit boy but and one of my favorite like double albums i love i've got i was like gonna our record player needs a new um needle but i was like i want to play my record now um but that idea of like uh, i mean you entitled chapter four whose rebellion was punk in the 1990s um and one of the things i appreciated that you really thought of like we're talking about Latino punk and what that means, because we often don't 
um, in punk circles, that sort of gets overlooked, but it's really important. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about what you were seeing? What, we'll start with the Latino punk in the U.S. And, and what was going on in the 90s. Yeah, so Latinos had been involved in punk since its early days. Um, so they had always been there. Like Alice Bag is one of the prominent uh, Ch- Chicana and L.A. punk scene. Um, so there had been that presence. But in a lot of ways, that Latino presence had sort of been erased or um, at least not allowed to um, be as visible as it could have been, um, it, in part because punk uh, tended to operate with a sort of colorblind racism, like we're all punks, we all have these punk rock ideals of like equality and unity, so let's not talk about, you know, um, what our identities are, what our cultures are other than punk. Um, so that had in some ways erased Latino and other identities. Um, and then I think in the eighties, um, with what we talked about at the beginning, as far as this kind of right wing element in punk that had obviously, you know, um, literally in some ways physically threatened the presence of, you know, Latinos and other non-white people within punk. So something that really changed in the 1990s was uh, several bands emerged that really asserted identities that weren't, you know, straight white male um, identities. And one of them was Los Crudos, uh, which was this Latino band from Chicago. Um, And the way they even went about doing punk was rather different than a lot of typical punk bands instead of just playing at punk venues and kind of playing within the existing punk scene, they just started holding shows in their own neighborhood of Pilsen, Chicago, uh, which at that time was majority Latino. Um, Mexicans is the main nationality within that. Um, Nowadays, I think it's been pretty gentrified, but um, back then it was very much a Latino neighborhood. And so Los Crudos cultivated this following among Latino youth and Um, At first, they kind of expected to just be this neighborhood band. Um, Then they, you know, put out records, started touring and found that they had a strong resonance within the general punk scene. Um, That in part had to do with the fact that they're just a damn good band. Um, Their, you know, style of hardcore is just, you know, um, really riveting to listen to, um, really captures a lot of intensity. But I think the other aspect of their popularity is that while um, there was this kind of propagandistic crust punk that often talked about political issues kind of from a personal distance, Los Crudos was actually talking about things, these political issues, but the ways they tied into their own lives, um, whether that was just the kind of you know problems they encountered in their neighborhoods or whether it was, you know, U.S. installed right-wing military dictatorships in their own countries. Um, these were things that they had this deep personal connection to. So I think that also resonated a lot with people in, in a different way than Crust Punk did. Um, and then, of course, the other thing Los Crudos found when they toured was a lot of other Latinos who were into punk, um, other Latino bands. Um, so that kind of uh, so in that way, they were the harbinger of basically a greater Latino presence in punk. Um, and part of what they did differently um, might sound simple, but singing in Spanish. Um, that really hadn't been done in U.S. punk before then uh, much. So just singing, you know, having all their songs in Spanish made a big impact on people. I, I loved um, when there was a part talking about how they would sort of do shows for the neighborhood and other people might show up, but that wasn't the goal, right? The goal was to like perform and do shows in the the neighborhood and for the people in the neighborhood and punk kids might show up and they might not show up, but that kind of grounding in that space, in their space and was really important. Yeah. And I think this is one of the things like Martin Sarandegui, who is the singer of Los Crudos brings out is um, that, one of the unique things about Los Crudos shows is they actually brought a mix of people together. Um, there would be some, you know, older people from the neighborhood, you know, who weren't necessarily into punk, but respected what Los Crudos was doing. You know, there might even be some gang members that come in, you know, sometimes hesitantly at first, but then they're like, oh, okay, this is cool. Um, and then there were punk kids from the suburbs too. 
So that actually brought in a good mix of people and, you know, was a way that people actually, you know, experience people from different social backgrounds, different cultures from them. So in that way, I think it was actually a real punk unity rather than the sort of punk unity that erases, you know, different cultures, different identities. Mm -hmm. Um, And so one thing uh, throughout the book, you know, as you're talking, it, it, you really looked at, um, interviews and you looked at more um, popular zines that during the time, music related zines. But one of the things you talk about in this chapter that really gets at is that sort of, and you mentioned it, the colorblindness, right, of having to pick whether you want to be um, a woman or a Latino, right? These are, and this was interesting because it's a very similar that I found in looking at um, 1990 zines, right? That same idea of who I have to pick or choose. And Michelle Gonzalez talks about that a bit, right? Those ideas. Um, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit, like I said, you alluded to a little bit, but a little more of that idea of um, how punk really sort of did, um, I don't know if a disservice is the right word, uh, but right to two large groups of people, non-white people or people who didn't identify in certain ways that punk wanted them to with this colorblindness. Yeah. So I think there's, there had been this longstanding strain of anti-racism in punk that had done some very good things like the rock against racism concerts in the 1980s, you know, joining with political movements like the anti-apartheid movement. So that that's the good side. On the negative side, I think often punk's anti-racism was mainly aimed at sort of blatant racism, like Nazi skinheads or apartheid in South Africa or kind of, you know, Ronald Reagan, which are kind of easier targets, right? Um, And punk's anti-racism didn't always deal with kind of the more systematic everyday racisms, you know, and didn't necessarily always think about, well, how does racism function within punk? Um, And, you know, in the US, uh, punk was a majority white scene. So obviously, just people are, these are like teenagers and people in their early 20s, they're going to be coming, you know, out of a white supremacist society and into punk, they're not going to have shed all those, you know, ideas magically or anything by any means. Um, So I think punk's anti-racism its weakness was not actually being able to deal at a deeper level, not being able to deal at a more self-critical level. And what happened was that you have this punk rock idea of unity, you know, which effectively then meant that, you know, women didn't talk about what's it like to be a woman punk, you know, what are my experiences with the punk scene and that um, Latinos, you know, asserting Latino identity was kind of met with backlash, basically. Um, And some people would even accuse punk bands who did that, like um, Anti-Product, whose singer Taina Seeley was Puerto Rican, um, that they were accused of, quote, reverse racism. Um, So in many ways, that's actually a lot of the same political debates that were going on in 1990s America more generally, you know, where there were debates about, you know, affirmative action and accusations of reverse racism, which were, of course, ridiculous, but those played out in the punk scene as well. Um, So I think it was really, um, you know, women punk bands, Latino punk bands, and other punk bands um, who asserted their identities, asserted their own experiences, um, presented more of a critique of the punk scene as it existed. Um, And that generated a lot of struggle and debate and conflict in punk. Um, Some people, I think, moved in better directions. Some people, you know, uh, responded to it with a lot of backlash. Um, Riot Girl, in a lot of ways, uh, basically kind of said, well, we're going to start our own scene if if this punk thing is going to be so male dominated. So so I think there were different responses to this. all of which are totally, you know, this is the nature of these things. There's going to be a lot of struggle. Um, But I do think um, 90s punk probably reshaped punk to actually open up some space for uh, more of that, for exploring identities that weren't just punk, you know, more room for women bands, more room for Latino bands, 
but it wasn't like a magical success story. Um, like two of the people I interviewed for the book, uh, Taina Seeley and then um, uh, Michelle Gonzalez, who is the drummer of Spitboy, they both, they're both, you know, Latina. Um, they both wound up leaving the punk scene in part just because they felt like, well, I can either be like Latina or punk and apparently I can't be both in this scene and I can't reconcile that. So I'm out of here. Um, I'm simplifying it. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, great quotes from them in my book about this experience, but that's also part of the outcome. Yeah. And so when you talk about women in punk too, one of the things you did was kind of analyze musically how that is different and what women bring there. So could you talk a little bit about that as well? Like what you saw going on um, with these women as lyricists and musicians? Yeah, sure. Um, So one of the uh, big stories of that in 1990s punk is the band Spitboy, which was an all women band from the San Francisco Bay area. Um, and they were in kind of the first half of the 1990s and their lyrics were definitely just using a lot of feminist politics and kind of fusing that with the punk attitude. Um, they also played a fairly hardcore style of punk. Um, so that was also kind of a challenge to the punk scene, you know, to basically assert, no, like women can play this heavy music too, and we can match it with this message and you just have to deal with it. Um, they they found like in the in the San Francisco barrier, I think they had an easier time kind of quote getting away with that. Um, the San Francisco scene was probably more accepting of that. And then in other places, they might get you know some hostile responses, some you know um, obnoxiously sexist comments thrown at them, and that sort of thing. Um, so I, I think they just generated a lot of debate over this uh, just by doing what they did. Um, I think also, well, I wouldn't say there's like one style of women punk or something like that. That would be obnoxiously reductive, right? There was a way that I think a lot of women punk bands basically kind of matched a sort of personal rage against just all the patriarchal shit they had been dealing with, with punk aesthetics. And it uh, sometimes resulted in songs that really told these kind of strong personal narratives. Again, a bit different than the more propagandistic crust punk, just because it was really dealing with uh, personal experience. So one of the songs I analyze in my book is called The Threat by Spitboy, uh, which just basically is um, confronting, you know, the threat of rape that women have to, you know, deal with every day as far as, you know, who might be lurking around the corner and that sort of thing. And musically, uh, what I find in it is there's uh, not just in the lyrics, but also in the music, this kind of narrative from despair to empowerment, um, where it goes from, you know, describing this kind of, you know, constant threat that women face to actually, you know, finding, you know, power and how to resist that. And um, what I really like doing in writing this book is actually tracing how that works in the musical sounds as well as the lyrics. Um, And yeah, you brought up, you know, when you talk about women in punk and just in general, um, sort of punk in general, but one of the things that you highlighted that fits in with this is the handing out lyrics, right? Getting those lyric sheets and being able to read those lyric sheets and know what the bands are talking about, which was not, which was done often in punk, but really thinking about how sharing those personal narratives and those personal stories helps the audience really connect with the band and connect with what's going on. Yeah. So this was uh, became a more and more common practice with the political punk bands in the 90s, was basically printing lyric sheets and handing them out at the shows. That was something that Spitboy uh, definitely did a lot of, partially because they really wanted to make sure the audience heard the message. And in some ways, I think when we, when we think back to the early 1990s, to say you're a feminist then was actually a lot more controversial than it is now, including within the punk scene. Um, so Spitboy, um, what I've come to understand about them through my research is they really had a lot of conscious thought into, well, how do we go about doing this? We're this like feminist, all women, hardcore punk band. We want to make sure people learn our message, you know, don't write us off, you know, aren't kind of scared away by the feminist word as a lot of people frankly were at that time. Um, so they printed 
part of doing that was printing their lyric sheets and passing them out to the audience everywhere they went. Um, and, you know, one of the things Michelle Gonzalez has described is like, one of the greatest joys was they'd be playing the song and seeing like women sing along, you know, um, and those lyric sheets of course helped with that. So I think it was a way to really connect um, with the audience and also make sure, and this is something political punk bands have done a lot of thinking about and kind of come up with conscious strategies, making sure that the politics were never lost, right? Making sure that even as people embrace the music and whatnot, that those the political message was kind of never lost in, you know, the loudness, the, you know, screamed vocals and all that. So And with any in the United States and in a capitalistic space, as with anything, um, somebody finds out about it and wants to make money. Uh, so you sort of your your final your final examination is on SoCal punk and also this idea of punk becoming popular and sort of getting commodified. Um, so can you sort of position SoCal punk and, and why you sort of chose that space to really think about this commodification and popularity in punk? Yeah, sure. Um, so let me start by saying one of the things I'm trying to avoid is like a romanticization of punk. And I've found that a lot of scholarship on punk kind of romanticizes it, whether it's, you know, uh, the, politi- the politics of it and sort of ignoring some of the more negative aspects, or whether it's this idea of DIY, do it yourself. Um, one of the great things about punk is, of course, that it created these networks of independent record labels and underground venues and scenes that didn't depend on the mainstream music industry. Um, So that's a kind of great achievement of punk. Um, What uh, then happens though, is that uh, sometimes that gets a bit romanticized and what emerged in the 1990s was that um, after kind of Nirvana and Seattle grunge got big, record labels, mainstream record labels started looking into punk bands. Um, And of course, extreme hardcore punk's not really going to sell, not going to make it on top 40 radio. Crust punk probably isn't. Um, They found that pop punk did, um, right? Um, So Green Day became very big. And then that other style kind of a little below pop punk in popularity was this SoCal punk style which had emerged um, kind of in the very end of the late 1980s, especially with the band Bad Religion. And what SoCal Punk uh, did was basically take kind of fast 1980s hardcore punk, but sing melodically, um, have vocal harmonies, and then also sometimes have lead guitar parts played with octave chords that have this kind of sentimental sound to them. so for those reasons, because it has a, it's kind of hardcore punk with a bit of a melodic aspect to it, it has a lot more potential for popularity. And in the early 1990s, um, it started becoming quite popular on independent record labels that were kind of DIY labels, but a little bigger than that. Um, and Epitaph Records, was, which was centered in LA, was the main record label for that um, they actually started selling hundreds of thousands of records at a certain point, Um, started doing much more slicker productions. Uh, You know, the recording quality was much cleaner than punk bands. So this started to kind of set them apart from the DIY punk scene. Um, And major record labels started looking at SoCal punk bands and saying, oh, maybe we can market this. Um, SoCal punk itself never got fully mainstream exactly it was sort of in between diy and um full-on mainstream some bands that kind of had a socal punk sound like the offspring did go on to success and of uh, of course bad religion was on a major record label and basically all hell break broke loose within the punk scene over this um for diy stalwarts this was basically kind of a sin that was worthy of excommunication um like you know if you were starting to play in more mainstream venues if you got a little radio play if your record sales were in the hundreds of thousands um you were no longer diy um so basically there was a big debate over that in the mid 1990s about what it meant to stay diy it's interesting because you also had 
um, these sort of because of this tours came out, you talk about the warp tour, right? Um, Lollapalooza, which still kind of sort of weirdly exists. Um, (laughs) The oddest of odd ways. Right. Um, But these tour, right. So those came out too. And it's really interesting um, to see how like um, the criticism of the warp tour, but you also talk about ways in which the warp tour also was trying to support, um, and giving space to some political activists and activism within those those touring spaces as well. Yeah. So the Warp Tour was this traveling festival in the summers um, that featured mostly punk bands that had a bit more popular appeal, like whether they were playing SoCal punk or pop punk style, and there were ska bands on it as well. Um, and it combined that with a lot of skateboarding culture. And that's part of what SoCal Punk's appeal was. It tended to appeal to um, skateboarding culture as well. Um, and it got sponsorship from the shoe company Vans. So it was the Vans Warp Tour. Um, so in this way, it was sort of a corporate festival, you know, not as big as other corporate festivals, but, you know, it was attracting tens of thousands of, you know, mostly teenagers and stops all across the country. So to people who kind of had this more DIY purist attitude, this was just sort of outrageous, right? Um, And was basically seen as ruining punk because you're attracting all these people to it who maybe don't understand the politics um, and you're getting corporate money. Um, So, you know, like any criticism, there's some truth to that. You know, Warp Tour did get more tied up with corporate entities. It was, you know, a different tour than DIY tours. And of course, anytime punk gets a bigger audience, um, you know, there's going to be people in that who maybe aren't into it for the politics. Of course, there are people who are into underground punk, not for the politics too. Um, so that point often gets ignored. Um, so that that was the Warp Tour. But One of the, I think, noteworthy things about the Warp Tour is they actually um, fairly consistently did like social justice tables at them. Um, I remember like early 2000s, I was doing a lot of organizing against the Iraq War. Um, I remember doing a table, you know, uh, for the Warp Tour. You know, the person who coordinated that, she was just really great at like making sure these, these political tables were there our table did really well. Like we signed up a lot of teenagers to be part of the anti-war movement, you know? Um, so I, I'm basically trying to avoid this like DIY purism and say, well, you know, yeah, there's these negatives that come with this mainstream success and corporate sponsorship, but you know, it's also a way to reach a broader audience. And I know one of the bands that consistently toured on the warp tour was anti-flag, um, still around today. Um, they play a more pop punk style, but uh, their political message is a lot more like the crust punk bands. Um, so they've had a huge impact through the Warp Tour, um, getting out that message. So in this, uh, this sort of in this final chapter, you choose to analyze No Effects's The Decline, like this epic song. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I don't need to go, you know, you get into that, but so. Can you talk just maybe a little about why you chose that song um, within this chapter to sort of think about SoCal Punk and, and all of this? Because it is, it's what, 18, 19 minutes long? It's yeah, so it's like an 18 minute long punk song. So you can't even call it a song anymore. So <laughs> number one, I think like as a musicologist, I was like obligated to analyze this because it's this kind of monumental punk song, um, nothing like it. Um it was very helpful just to kind of show how punk, how SoCal punk style works in particular, uh, because it has basically all the elements there, the melodic vocals, the vocal harmonies, these um, lead guitar parts played with what are called octave chords. Um, so it definitely exemplifies the SoCal punk style. But the other thing I found it, uh, I found helpful about analyzing it is that this song, the lyrics are basically analyzing all the ways that in their eyes, American society is in decline, Um, whether that's Christian fundamentalism or whether that's, you know, um, drug addiction, including by way of prescription pills, um, whether that's just the way that the culture has gotten more uh, more individualistic, um, basically just all these things in American culture that to the band no effects were kind of a sign of, it's, you know, decline. Um, 
And I think musically, what was interesting to me is looking at the ways this 18 minute long song does that, how it starts with this very kind of like stark hardcore introduction um, and literally starts basically talking about where did all these stupid people come from? Um, So right there, there's kind of a shot at American culture. Um, And the second line is, and how did they get to be so dumb? Um, so, you know, um, a lot of things that I think are fairly relevant today as we're in kind of like Trump conspiracy (laughs) land era. Um, but I think musically it moves through all kinds of different moods and all kinds of musical techniques. Um, so it was a way of actually looking at actually punk technique, punk musical techniques can be fairly nuanced and they can actually, you know, um, give off all kinds of different moods from despair to, you know, um, introversion to aggression to franticness. Um, they can give off all these different moods. And when we actually look at, okay, what does this riff do? How's it different than this other riff? Okay. They've got this lead guitar part here. What does that uh, do to the mood of the music? So as a way of really looking at the intricacies of punk style and how these musical techniques can be used um, for all kinds of different moods in all kinds of different ways. So um, when you you know bring this all together, you you do this work. So what do you think is the impact? Right, you talk a bit about this in your conclusion, but like what is it um, that that '90s punk teaches us or is brought to us? Like why is this so important to really look at what was going on? in the 1990s in punk? Yeah, so I think there's a few things. Um, One is I think it's interesting to think about how kind of politically rebellious musics, what do they do when there's kind of a liberal political consensus in power? Um, In one sense, it's sort of obvious what they do when you have like a Reagan or a Trump in power. Um, It's kind of easy when you have a figurehead who's kind of the symbol of everything Um, that, you know, a lot of people hate. Um, But I think when you have a liberal kind of multi, officially multicultural political consensus in power, there's a question of, okay, how do you actually um, create kind of protest music? And this is, I think, one thing 90s punk was successful at is during the Clinton era, actually being a strong voice of opposition to um, everything from, you know, uh, police brutality to uh, the continued existence of political prisoners to environmental destruction to the power of multinational corporations. Punk found a way to articulate all those things. And I think something it had to do differently in the 1990s was rely a little bit less on kind of simple anthems. Like during the Reagan era, it was kind of easy to use these simple anthems during the 90s, it had to kind of go deeper and explore like, okay, well, what's the position of Latino immigrants in society? You know, um, what's our response to like Proposition 187 in California? Um, You know, how is abortion rights being willed away slowly and slowly? Um, So I think just actually figuring out how to voice opposition to these things at a time when, um, it wasn't sort of as obvious when there wasn't necessarily huge protest movements going on. That was, I think, one aspect that was important. Um, I think another thing learning about 90s punk does is actually help us appreciate the contradictions and conflicts within it. Um, That, I think, in a lot of studies of 70s and 80s punk often gets sort of glossed over and punk sort of gets romanticized because, you know, it was this great rebellious culture that was an important political movement of the time. Um, with 90s punk, I think to understand it, we have to deal with these questions of like, well, what was racism like within punk? Well, um, you know, what was the situation as far as being a woman in the punk scene? You know, what did that mean? Um, just these kind of conflicts and debates come through much more. Um, so I think that's a helpful thing to learn about 90s punk. And then I think another thing is just the tactics for how to actually involve people politically. Um, lots of punk bands really thought consciously about like what's going to be in my in our album art. You know, how's that going to sort of point people in the direction of getting involved in a movement for political prisoners? Um, you know, um, how do we sort of um, tell people about what's corporate globalization all about. And 
we actually see real results of that, like in the 1999 Seattle WTO protests, where punks were actually an important contingent of that, um, especially, but not only in the anarchist black blocks, you know, punks played a role in actually shutting down that WTO meeting, which was this very important political event where people really showed um, some strength against basically the people who run the world. Um, so that and in other political movements, whether it's the pro-choice movement or the Mumia Bujamal movement, we really see the presence of punks in it. And I think learning about how punk bands, how people who wrote punk scenes, how people who put on punk shows, how they actually thought about, okay, we have this following with this, you know, largely youth crowd. How do we actually move them from being these kind of like pissed off, alienated youth to being youth who, you know, are going to protests or getting involved in political organizing? Um, so I think that story, there's a lot of lessons in that for anybody who's trying to do that today. So, so you get my final question because we were talking for a while. So, um, and this sort of just came out, right? Um, so is there any last plugs? Is there anything else you're working on you want to talk about or anything that's going on with this book that you want to plug? Good question. Um, so, <laughs> um, you know, I'm, uh, I'm contributing an essay to like this hardcore um, 40 years later book. That's not the exact title of it. Um, about hardcore style. So I think there's a lot of uh, punk scholarship being done today, um, especially just now that it's got this, you know, over 40 year history. Um, so I'm happy to be a part of that. Um, I'm also really interested in kind of exploring more the connections between music and political movements. Um, I've mentioned the movement from Umiya Jamal a few times in this book. Um, that's something punk was involved in. That's something hip hop was involved in. That's something jazz was involved in. Um, that's something rage against the machine was a big part of. Um, so I'm hoping to actually look at that even further and not just with punk, but in relation to other musical genres, how they are a part of it. Um, so that's, yeah, one of my aims in the future. Well, again, David, it's been great talking to you. This was David Pearson, who's the author of Rebel Music in the Triumphant Empire, Punk Rock in the 1990s United States. Thanks for talking with me for New Books Network. Thanks for having me on, Rebecca. <laughs>